You're listening to the Grouchy Marxist Show with me, your host, Grouchy Marxist. This week, race, just another white boys game. So what I'm going to try to do today is tell you a story that I'm almost certainly sure you don't know about, which is about a 15-year-old boy from Linwood living in South Africa in 1976 and that of another young boy living in South Africa in 1976 and a couple of years younger and what befell him during those times that we were in the same country at the same time. Intertwined with my story will be the story of Hector Peterson and we will hear from his sister Antoinette who was present on the the day of the Soweto, so-called Soweto uprising. June 1976. We also hear from the photographer who took the iconic picture of a, a young man called Mbiasa Bukabu, and he was a boy carrying Hector alongside Antoinette, who was an obvious torment, our brother's shooting. So, this incident that we'll be talking about took place in Soweto, where kids were campaigning against it the curriculum now being taught in Afrikaans as opposed to English, whilst they had their own Bantu languages which were completely ignored. Mandela also wrote about this incident in his uh, Long Walk to Freedom autobiography. So, I mean, it's quite a quite a poignant moment in history. So, basically, that's the, that's the tale I'm going to tell. My story, my journey from the, the, the humble beginnings in Linwood and ending up in a place called Stanga, about 60 kilometres north of Durban on the east coast of the South African continent. We arrived at Shaka's Rock 
at the Shackers Rock Hotel right on the, the coast just outside Stanger uh, 60 kilometres north of Durban on the Tal or Quasazulu's uh, Dolphin Coast once ruled by the, the mighty King Shackazulu so almost six months to the day later we were packing every item we could carry into cases, bags, vanity cases and holdalls and secretly moonlighting back to Scotland leaving our car, our furniture and all kinds of possessions, some even treasured over the years. We were escaping from a world we were never going to accept and from day one never really made any attempt to adopt. So let's get to the in-between bit, the bit where the dream of a new life and new opportunities and a new exciting new world turned quickly to what I like to call shit. So it began in the day I started school, it began in a history class and I suppose you could say it started with the first chapter in all South African history books, the Boer War. So, although the British were, were beaten by the Dutch settling Afrikaners in 1899, there was obviously still a fair bit of gloating and baiting and play for those of us newly arrived from the, the UK. So I managed to stand up and I'm introduced to the classes Drew from the UK, specifically Scotland, and someone called uh, David Anderson said his great grandfather came from Ayrshire and I think that's nice, that's great someday to maybe chat to you about that. My hair is 70s long and I'm the only person in the class with long hair, apart from the girls. My trousers are high-waisted and flared wide at the bottom, everybody else is wearing straight legs. And both of these uh, attributes are commented on by the history teacher who then suggests short hair like David's and a complete change of trousers to something much narrower. Uh, that would help me settle in better. And this attracts a, a fair amount of laughter in the class. But there's no, there's no real disaster there. I've been laughed at in class before. And so I have a wee laugh as well. And I sit down again. I should note here for you that as a, a fourth year, unsure of the grade system, but possibly grade 8 or 9, I would have been expected on arrival at school each day to take part in the National Service Cadets Training and Marching Programme in preparation for joining the South African Army uh, to fight in Angola on leaving full-time education. But after discussions with my dad, his employers and the education system, it was agreed that when I finished school, I would be a, a direct entry into university, avoid immediate conscript and so and as a trade-off I had to learn Afrikaans. Now I was getting a curriculum in English here and this will be an important part of uh, our story later on but, but in chatting to my sister Pamela she told me that she would have had to sit her exams in Afrikaans despite being only a couple of years younger than me, maybe two years below me in school, whereas I would be sitting my exams in English, Pamela would have to have sat hers in Afrikaans, and I think that might have been another issue that would have cropped up somewhere along the line. Anyway, anyway, I digress a little, right? So back to history class, history book chapter one, and after a quick intro on the terms, what, uh, which of course would be Afrikaner history, the, the now fully flowing teacher poses me a hypothetical question which could have passed without notice if the question had been directed to another new boy in the class, Barry Packham, a cracking young guy from Maidstone in Kent, uh, and a lovely guy Barry and he was a good friend and we met before we went to school. But it was me that was asked the question. So the question I was asked was this, if the blacks started writing in South Africa tomorrow and started attacking white South Africans and Afrikaners, would you stay and fight for South Africa or would you run back to the UK? 
totally waited. Ten minutes in. Ten minutes of South African education under my belt. And 15-year-old Drew replied thus. Well, I, I, I wouldn't want to be fighting the blacks. It's their country, isn't it? About 1976, we were told that subjects are going to be taught in Africans. Okay, as deep and gedachte terwijl hij hankend aan staat schooltje. So we felt like the very same subject that we are struggling with English, we are going to do in Africans. This doesn't make sense. For many years, blacks were learning English, but when they say that now you must try to learn everything in Africans, it was difficult for the students. We preferred to be taught in English because we felt like English is the international language. To us it was like, okay, now our oppressors think that whatever they want to say to us, we will do because we are afraid of them. So we just decided that we are really going to demonstrate. The law of the country was that we're not allowed to take pictures of anything that the police have done. So I knew I was risking my life. The last picture that I took with this camera is for Hector Peters in June 1676. I didn't know about this kid's death at the time. However, I had heard of the Soweto uprising in 1976, but the press that I read certainly wasn't the press that was going back to the UK, I'm sure about that. Especially from a country who, who banned the book Jaws by Peter Blenchley, and also, even though they allowed to, the, the shark film to be shown in South African drive-ins, cow all the, all the shots of the shark. <laughs> So I was inspired to write this 4,000 word essay basically through a process of uh, listening to some radio and also the, the Black Lives Matter issue, the, the George Floyd killing, these things came along uh, at a time when I was thinking about writing about my past and it made me think about obviously my own experiences and what I do at the start is basically I, I go back and read and research a little, uh, not a lot, but to, to kind of bring my thoughts together and piece them into a, a place and a time that I remember. So this story is about myself and a boy called Peterson. It's a difficult story to tell, but I'm, I'm going to give it a go anyway, and I hope I present it in a way that's res respectful, so I hope I don't hurt MD in, in the process of this. But it is just an exploration. It's... So what do I know about race? As far as I'm aware, my knowledge of world religions is limited. There are no mentions of the word race in any religious text from any of the world's main religions. Nowhere in the Muslim Quran, the Buddhist Sutras, the, the Jewish Tanakh, the Hindu books of knowledge, or even the Christian Bible. And this very limited knowledge led me to wonder where did this word come from? And why does it wield so much power and injustice in the 21st century? We can address directly the institutions, the regulations, the laws, the attitudes. 
which impact most heavily and was affected uh, by most racial injustices in current times. I, I may have been wrong before, uh, this is true, but a quick net search tells us that the, the word race or raza originated in Italy in the early 16th century. Simple, easy to find. A quick glance at definitions and these are provided. Each of the major divisions of humankind having distinct physical characteristics or a population within a species that is distinct in some way, a subspecies or a group of people sharing the same culture, language, history. So the human race in its evolutionary process invented a word which existed only to highlight and identify different physical attributes and characteristics to each race and deem one superior to all the others with a descending hierarchy which, at its bottom, were, as white people now describe them, black people. Some students leaked the information to the world newspaper. They told us tomorrow is going to be students protesting against Africans. On the 16th of June in 1976, we were so excited. It was like we were going on a school trip. To them it was just a joyful march. The singing, the chanting, we felt free. Surprisingly, the whole of Soweto came together to march. About 10,000 students. As I was marching with the students, I drifted away from them because I didn't know how it was going to happen. But I knew they would be arrested or even shot by the police. The word was first used to refer to speakers of common languages and later to identify national affiliations, if not direct nationality. By the 17th century, the term began to refer to physical attributes. And how did this deviation in meaning establish itself? How did it become an instrument of control and power? This evil and tragic word was established through what we now call scientific racism. Yes, the politicians follow the science. Sometimes termed biological racism, a pseudo-scientific belief that empirical evidence exists to support or justify racism is basically what it is. So what astonished me most about this most basic research was that the term appears to have been prevalent and prominent from around the 1600s to the end of World War II and now as we live in a world beyond Malcolm X and Martin Luther King it's, it's comforting to know that these dangerous beliefs are almost entirely discredited by the scientific community though the the masterly molecules of a malevolent past are still preserved in both regional and national ideologies and government policies. In the UK, perchance? Ah, well, they deny it. Thankfully, the, the general view is that we are so scientifically similar in all the ways that make us human that we are categorised as one race, the race of humans of Homo sapiens. So how was this surge to support and adopt scientific racism managed? How was it nurtured, controlled, written into educational text, embodied in laws and worse still at the end of the slave trade into compensation payments to slavers for their great losses? 
how you're housed, how you're educated, how you're policed, how you're treated at hospitals, how you're treated by authorities, by the media, by politics, by your neighbours, your workmates, your family and your friends. This is the system. This is government and only by the will of government can anything be implemented and ultimately changed. And going by the recent reports where the, the government strategically rewrote uh, the, the own independent investigation into institutionalised racism and kept a bit that they liked and and barely stand as much as they could and left the rest out is absolutely criminal. But let's move on. Police barricaded some of the street. So our leaders told us that other schools are on the way. The student leader clamped on top of the tree, telling them that this is a peaceful march. I was between the police and the students. And I put my armband, which has got written press here, so that the police must identify me as a journalist, not a, a student. While waiting for these other students, all of a sudden, there was a shot. All the police were just shooting at random. So the students scattered. I think what provoked the police is that they sang the song which was banned in South Africa, which today is a national anthem. We all ran amok in confusion, running for cover. I didn't even think of my brother would be in that because we were told that only secondary and high schools were to take part. Then I spotted my younger brother on the opposite side of the pavement. He was too young to understand what was really going on. I just said to him, no, you must just stay here next to me. I'll make sure I find a way back home. While I was talking to him, there was another shot and we went two separate ways. I don't know who said the winners write the history books, but they were right. And if the current mood of change continues, then the current historians are going to have to get up to speed writing and rewriting every historical text ever presented to a school child or a university student if the real truth of history is to be impartially presented. So what do I know about race? Well, as little as it is, I know what I've lived. In my earliest teenage years, due to my father's work, I was fortunate enough to enjoy long Christmas and summer holidays in pre-revolution, pre-exiled, shack-controlled Iran, a country where all the secret police world records even uh, in missing persons. I've walked white and privileged through the streets of Haftapi, Awaz, and Abadan in the south and in the capital, Tehran in the north. I returned from all trips with sadness and questions and learned a great deal about Persian culture and history and also about the atrocity of professional disablement of children for begging purposes. So my memories of Tehran are extreme contrast between images, sounds and smells of busy streets and boulevards populated almost entirely by men where every 10 yards another child, some not much younger than myself, sat pre-twisted or tied for future deformity, begging for money outside busy shops and bazaars. And in opposition, the majestic houses and monuments which heralded the Shah and all things royal Iran, illuminated, opulent. It was beautiful. In Haftapi, where my father worked in a local paper mill, my father regularly harboured his machineman, Mohammed Akhmani, in our house whenever he heard the secret police were coming to the area. But Assessing a country on a holiday visa is a, is a difficult thing, but I got a different view 
and my experiences widened in February 1976, age 15, when my father decided we should give immigration to South Africa a go. So off we went with the same enthusiasm, we went anywhere, left our family, our friends and hope for the best. I was very close from where the police were shooting and I saw a person fell down when I did not expect to see a 13-year-old boy being shot by the police. As I sneak back to the pavement, he was nowhere to be seen. When I took that picture, Buiso Makuba picked him up to get Hector Peters into the clinic. So I quickly ran to the scene. I was trying to explain myself, this is my younger brother. Where are you taking him? The man never said anything. And I looked at my brother. I saw blood coming from the side of the mouth. As he was about to put my brother in the car, he said, he's dead. take uh, an unproductive amount of time to detail every incidence of persecution and abuse that followed out for almost the entire time I attended Stanger High, but I'll give you a wee flavour. Uh, most days when getting off the school bus on arrival or en route to the same bus at the end of the day, some big tidy Africana uh, or white South African would be happy to call me Kaffir lover and either challenge me directly to a fight or bypass that process completely, becoming up blindside with a slap or a punch. Right, to be fair, uh, after a month or so of that, a popular Afrikaner classmate called Paul, who had punched me during the break in the first two or three days, must have eventually taken pity on me and declared that I didn't understand how things were and that he was teaching me. So the abuse I received wasn't reserved to fights. You know, prefects would snidely drop sweet wrappers and crisp pokes on the ground in front of me when I'm walking from class to class or during breaks and telling me to pick them up and put them in a bin. And I'd been steeled already for a few regular beatings and I would tell them in as colourful language as I could possibly muster to stick their litter where, where the sun didn't shine. And for that disobedience I would be taken to any teacher who would administer the appropriate number one, I think it was two, three wax of the cane on my palm while, while they looked on. Uh, this dried up after a wee while when I mentioned at home and another multi-team meeting was set up to address it. So, uh, back in the Mill Village, the conflicts were equally stark. We lived in a still-to-be-completed custom-built paper mill workers' village, populated mostly with expats from the UK, some of which were families we'd met previously in Iran and Madame maybe I've worked in other places with. These were supplemented by a few European and Africana families, but the, the demographic was pretty limited. The roads, the roads within the village, which in our time we never saw tarred, were gravelly and dusty, and seeds to grow, lush lawns had been been sown, but I don't remember much grass actually arriving. The, the banana tree was a bonus, to be fair. 
So the, the house itself was newly built, bright, detached, spacious, set about f 15 feet up from the road, accessed by a steep, dried mud drive and adjacent to the house and connected by a beautifully constructed dark wood beam patio uh, with servants' quarters, though from what I believe no one ever stayed there. So I was unaware at the time of the legalities, but it was common practice for, for mill employees to provide work for women in the local Bantu townships. The work would be that of a house girl, a label in itself, quite demeaning for any woman, and the duties would be to clean the household, go shopping, any other tasks as required. Now, I did believe there was no opportunity to dispute, challenge or refuse this obligation. The reason and justification I believed was at the most basic level was to give disenfranchised black women the right to earn money and feed their families where no other work existed. But I did learn from my sister, however, only just recently, that my mum didn't want to take a house girl and actually refused Florence's appeals initially. But Florence apparently implored my mum, saying her husband had just left her. She had a few kids and needed the money. So my mum took her on board and she became an extension of the family as much as I can remember. When we ate, she ate and she ate at the same table. She split the housework with my mum and they took breaks at the same time, had a coffee and a chat. It was two people sitting looking after a house together. So as I've mentioned, I'm entwining this tale of my times in South Africa and thinking about race and what it really means to somebody who's white and privileged. So while we headed off to school as normal, a young black man, Hector Peterson, aged 13, was shot dead by the South African police as he peacefully protested in a demonstration led by South African school children and students. The, the demonstration was against the imposition of a 50-50 split in teaching instruction which was to be split between English and Afrikaans so that the whole curriculum was changing for the kids. They'd already had to learn English to access and participate in the curriculum and now been told that in order to get certain subjects. So subjects such as maths would be taught in Afrikaans while other subjects, for example science, would be taught in English. The indigenous languages could only be used for instruction in religion, music and physical culture. We buried my brother on the 3rd of July. The hardest part of it was why did police open fire? It really did not make sense. Because as we were students, we never had weapons. The photo itself tells it all. Even the youngest were there, they felt like being oppressed is not okay. Look at what happened. Even the youngest was killed. So to me, the picture reflects all those families who had similar incidents, because I know that we were not the only ones. So it's June the 16th, which is now a, a national holiday in South Africa and is named Youth Day in memory of these events. So various reports cite that from 176 to 700 people, mostly children and young people, died and over 4,000 were injured. 
So what effect did the Soweto uprising have in South Africa? Well, it pr propelled the non-racialist ANC into international view. They now had a real platform to challenge apartheid. It resulted in the majority of South Africa being outraged at the levels of brutality towards school children. Black workers went on strike, 400 white students marched in protests in the streets of Johannesburg and international sanctions swiftly increased. Riots broke out across the Cape following Soweto. More people died in 1976. It would be another 14 years before Nelson Mandela would be released. And as I sit here and consider our own recent protest laws in the, the UK recently being revisited and looks like annoyance can now be a be a crime is it reasonable to argue right that the fear the sacrifice the oppression the brutality the injustice of it all and the indignity of being black in apartheid south africa would drive any decent human being to revolt and surely we can only see those protests as valid and real moral objection with no political power against a whole government and a ruling race then it could also be argued that the only satisfactory challenge could be through protests, demonstrations, strikes, violence and maybe ultimately death and all the time going through all that aware that the journey and possibly even the outcome may result in more of the status quo or worse than that, even worse. What started as a peaceful protest degenerated into a rampage and later exploded into a bloody conflagration. So it was on fire. No journalist was sleeping on that night until the following day. There was a cloud of smoke all over Soweto. Bent houses, buses, it was tense. I knew that the police would force me to open all my cameras. So I removed the film quickly and I stuck it on my sock. When the police opened all my cameras, all the films were exposed, except the pictures I took of Hector Peterson. There was a big debate up at the World Newspaper. The editor thought, we must not use this picture, because this picture is going to spark civil war in South Africa. But eventually, the editor of the World Newspaper decided that no, come what may, we must use this picture. The police came to the office of the World Newspaper. They weren't happy about They were exposing what the government was doing. Of course, the picture was banned in South Africa. I did not know that it was going to have such a big impact. So, uh colonial catalogue of catastrophes continued, especially in the village, in the working village with Florence and Oomsie. Now, as I said before, my mum didn't want to have a house girl, and when when Florence couldn't make it, she used to send her daughter Oomsie to work, and my mum refused to allow Oomsie to work, saying that she had a 16-year-old son in the house that could do the cleaning, but she still paid Florence for the days she couldn't make it. And they also paid a bit over the rate. Now, when Bantu women expect went back to their 
to their townships. They, they maybe talked about the relationship they had with my mum and dad and our family. And after that, then you can only guess the stories went round uh, the workers' village, but it but it did escalate uh, in quite a few significant gunpowder moments. Oopsie worked for a woman called Ruth Green, whose husband worked with my dad, and Ruth didn't pay Oomsie regularly, so Florence asked my mum to intervene. So she went to Ruth Green's house and asked her to pay the girl, and Ruth Green replied, I'll pay her when I'm good and ready. So my mum said, look, I'll pay her, and you can pay me back. I know when your husband gets paid, and I'll be back on Thursday for you to pay me back. And that's what happened. Now, Ruth said to my mum, you know, it's people like you giving the calf his ideas that's ruining South Africa. police also came to me to find out why take this picture. I told them I was assigned to do this job. And then he said, Sam, choose between your job and your life. Now we have been given a final assignment that we must not arrest you, we must just shoot at you. That's the thing that made me leave the job from the world newspaper. My folks were very clear regarding how we treated Florence with the exact same respect and deference to her as to them as parents and as adults. So we cleaned, we chatted, we laughed together and with that we pretty much sealed our anti-racist, anti-imperialist fates. Uh, my mother, still alive, could tell many stories of how she defended her relationship with Florence and my father told me about the time when the Greens again came to our house and shouted at my mum for the way she treated the girls and that we were too good to them in front of Florence and my mum demanded that he left the house but I vividly remember Florence's strong vibrant voice proclaiming I am not a girl and I followed him across the road. Then one day I saw a young black South African wheeling a trolley down our dusty, rarely explored roads and he wore a white jacket, a white baseball cap and was heartily singing uh, and, and ringing a school bell from what looked like the Victorian era. I, I caught the Walls logo and immediately shouted to Pamela who was near the house to get some cash for cones and before she managed to return Philip Green, the son of the aforementioned Greens, you never forget these names, he was, a, he was a class peer, I mean, he appeared with his fully sized, frothing German shepherd, straining at a leash, feet from the trolley and the ice cream seller, who was now jumping back and forth to avoid injury to protect his trolley. You know, my instinctive responses were to, to apologise to the ice cream guy who was screaming expletives, you know, backed up by obscenity supported by all sorts of things until Philip and his dog went back inside. The ice cream disappeared back up the dustier road and when they came back out I got my revenge and for the first time in South Africa I not only started a fight but won one. So a few hours later sitting at our dinner there's a chap at the door and on the other side of the door is the father of the recently battered 
Philip Green and he asked my dad and I to join him at his house to sort things over a, a juice and a beer sort of thing. So when we were sitting in the living room he explains how things are in South Africa and why he thinks that's the way they're best kept and that we need to try and understand why the blacks had to be kept in their place. Certainly with all the language a committed racist can provide he predicted riots and anarchy and if we were good to them we'd be causing that problem in the village he then brought in a, a well-scalped Philip and the German Shepherd and he petted the dog affectionately as you would any loved pet and then both he and Philip left the room for a few minutes leaving us with a, the wolf tied to a door hook he then returned, wearing a black jumper, black trousers, black boots, black gloves and a black balaclava with only eye slits and he slowly walked towards the dog, he taunted it, slapped it, punched it and eventually kicked it till the dog was raging enough you know, to, to attack its black top affectionate owner. So we left to taunts of you know, softness and stupidity but my dad wasn't short of a few retorts as well as we crossed the road home. I was on house arrest for about uh, a year and seven months. During that time, I resigned from the world newspaper. And after that, they didn't even say that the sentence is over. So for many years, I regretted taking the picture of Hector Peterson because the picture destroyed my future in journalism. But I'm no longer regretted because Mandela, when he was unveiling Hector Peterson Memorial, when we saw this picture, we said, enough is enough. After so many years, people are free in South Africa. And that is really giving me a consolation. In the name of peace, democracy and freedom for all. And it was a week later, during our regular Sunday braai with the Malcolms, a family who were also from Johnston and known to my parents before Stanger, a crowd of expat English families appeared at the bottom of our drive. The crowd was led by someone who was a good friend of my dad's from Contracts in Iran and, and we all loved him to bits. And the collective issue was Florence, specifically how we treated her, paid her, fed her and the impact this was having on their house girls and their demands and their expectations. So the great and good of England's country garden, Kent, had spoken and once again my dad was given advice on how things were supposed to be. So life's journeys hold kind of critical, defining moments for us all and I think what was to happen next would be one of mine. In a few short moments and sentences I would learn so much from and about my dad. It may in fact have been the most significant in influences in terms of honesty, assertiveness, integrity, strength of character, fearlessness of purpose and consequence, but, but in its essential elements, he was really just doing the right thing. So while the men mumbled and moaned and the women threw in snide asides, and as the tempo and pitch rose, my, my dad called for order though that content is obviously censored. So he got ordered, told us kids to go inside and watching through the patio doors, my sister Pamela, the Malcolm brothers and I saw and heard this. My father took a drink of his chilled beer and told the six or seven men in attendance to line up in order, biggest at the front, smallest at the back. When they'd done that, he calmly proclaimed he would kick the shit out of the first three in the line take a break for another beer 
and then do the same with the rest. They mocked us as they retreated. So my dad returned to work the next day as a manager of the pulp mill. Pressures were coming to bear, obviously. So it may have been one or two days later when we were off in the darkness to Durban Airport with the return tickets my dad had refused to give up to his company, which was always his policy, leaving behind uh, white-only trains, restricted shop entry, horrible toilet signs, and the worst of humans. I've never met a nice South African. My only true fond memories of this country are belly boarding at, at Shaka's Rock Beach and Blythewood Beach, having a skateboard, going to the drive-in, and a truly defining teenage moment when walking along a beach with my dad only to come upon a sign saying blacks only and just beyond a group of topless South African women of all ages played in the surf. In November of 1976 when I returned to boarding school I received a letter from a friend Roy from Fife whose family also emigrated to, to our village. He wrote of a machine gun frenzy in Stanger Mill village. Florence wasn't with us for our whole time in South Africa and I can just recall a story that my sister had told me that, that she, like my dad and Harry Thomas, had taken most of our furniture to Florence's township and I never saw or heard from her again. But my dad, I think, described Florence's township and home as terrible. There are quite a lot of people who died because they wanted to show that we are not supporting the apartheid in the country. The Hector Peterson Museum, it's a place of reconciliation. Those who died made us live better today. And as for my brother, I know that he did not die in vain. The picture changed South Africa and apartheid because the world felt that this is enough. So ten years later, after that, I would write a poem entitled Oompsie Our Slave, turned into a song which I then performed in a band I created called Black Man White. These names were challenged then as racist in the 80s, but I was always able to justify the use of these words, the terminologies and the meaning to me, and I hope that was enough. The poem was about Florence, but Oompsie had a more poetic edge. Um, my feelings for both were identical. So now, what do I, a white, ageing, public school educated, privileged educator, know about race? Even now, I would guess nothing much. I can empathise instinctively, as I was taught to by my parents. I'm willing to learn what my black peers want me to learn in order to understand, challenge and change further the inequalities, the apparently impervious structures, the institutional biases they perceive and face in reality and in every nuance of their everyday lives that might be the best I can do. Is that enough? So let me let me leave you then uh, this podcast and thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed uh, the two stories and I hope that you that you look a wee bit further into the omissions 
from the 1976 Soweto Uprising and go and find out a wee bit more about it yourself. There's lots of great videos on YouTube and explanations everywhere uh, from worldwide national newspapers, actually part of the, the start of the end of apartheid. So this question um, that was recently posed by James O'Brien on LBC, which inspired me to, to write and consider my knowledge of, of race. How would you, a white parent, explain and justify to your naturally inquiring child why in your town centre which you pass through regularly there exists a street name or a statue which honours a person who benefited by millions of pounds in privilege through the capture, the rape, the exploitation and the working to death of your white great grandfathers and ancestors who were regarded as property and of less value than a horse. Thank you. Interview sound clips from Antoinette Peterson and photographer Sam Nzima, provided by Red Border Films, a time production, can be found on YouTube under Soweto Uprising, the story behind Sam Nzima's photograph, 100 photos, time. Thank you, and good night.